Well, I, I let it out of the bag a few minutes ago that we're beginning a little mini-series entitled, The Serious Business of Heaven. That is a, uh, a partial quote of the author C.S. Lewis. The full quote goes like this, joy is the serious business of heaven. And when C.S. Lewis, who is really quite a thinker, not a shallow man by any means, when he makes a categorical statement like that, we want to pause and, and think it through. What do you base that upon? And there are many passages in the Word that we could go to, but I have been uh, wanting to have something with some continuity for this summer, knowing, though, that people have vacations and they need to be away. So it's a mini-series, not a long one. This fall, perhaps, we'll start a, a larger series of studies. But today, I'd like to invite you in your New Testament to Luke chapter 15. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Joy is the serious business of heaven. And in this chapter, we're going to come across some stories, maybe one of the most famous, if not the most famous, of all the stories or parables that Jesus delivered and that we have recorded. But I think that as we go through this series, you'll see some things perhaps you would not seen before. I, my eyes are being opened myself as I study and look to the Lord for understanding it is a very, uh, in many ways, a almost scandalously radical chapter of Scripture. And one of, the, one of the dilemmas of the preacher is if he's going to accurately divide the Word of God, handle the Word of God, is not to take the passage and drag it forward to today and immediately start trying to apply it. That is not the way to understand God's Word. My task is to take us and to, to transport us 2,000 years backwards and then to look at the audience and look at the address and try to understand what it meant to those people at that time. And then we take it and apply it to today. But we don't just grab passages, drag them into our present tense, and start applying them recklessly. That's not a good way to study the Word. And so that's going to be my attempt uh, to try to help us think and to picture what is taking place here. Now, in Luke chapter 15, I want us to begin with the opening seven verses I don't know how far we'll get today. We're going to begin there, and then we're going to try to surround it and put some meat on the bones and try to help us get some insight into it in its historic context. So verse 1 says this, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, 
if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So that is the first of three stories that unfold in this great chapter. And there are common threads that run through all three of these stories. And we will see them as we move along through this series. But what is, is really startling that really captures your attention is seeing this chapter in its context. Context is so crucial. You remember, I've mentioned many times, and many of you know this, the original Greek text of the scriptures had no verse numbers. It had no chapter divisions. It flowed right out of what we would call chapter 14, right into this great chapter. And so we have to take a look. Now, the immediate context is the last statement of chapter 14. Look at that with me. You see what he says? The last thing he says in chapter 14. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the interesting thing about this is that what he just had got finished saying was some of the most forceful, demanding, radical teachings on the call to discipleship to follow him that he ever gave in all the New Testament. And I want you to see this because chapter 15 doesn't make sense if we don't see it in what preceded it. So if you back up just a little bit in chapter 14, for instance, and look at verse 25. It says in verse 25, Now great multitudes were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, and this is what's so staggering, what he says here you would think is instruction just for maybe the twelve possibly the 70, but certainly you wouldn't want to give this kind of call to discipleship, this radical call to follow Jesus Christ, to give your all and to trust him, give him full allegiance is what he calls for. And you wouldn't think he would deliver that kind of teaching to the whole multitude, but he does. Look at it there, verse 26 looks at the great multitude and he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow, 
He said that to the multitude. If you would follow me, then all other loves in your life, all other affections in your life, all other devotion in your life will pale in comparison to your love, allegiance, and devotion to me. That's a disciple. And it's in that light that we learn really to love. We have a much greater capacity to love father, brother, sister, children, and so on when our lives are completely uh, inebriated with Jesus Christ. So he delivers this powerful teaching on discipleship and this call to full surrendered allegiance to himself. And then he follows it and says, let me reason with you for a moment. And so when you look at verse 28, look at what he says. For which one of you, in other words, does this seem like hard teaching? Does it seem like I'm saying to you, you better think twice about following me, about devoting your life to me, about trusting me and following me? You better think twice. And in a sense, that's what he's doing. And in verse 28, he says, For which one of you, when he, builds, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost and see if he has enough to complete it? What's he calling for? He's saying, are you sure you want to be a Christian? Are you sure you want to follow Christ? Are you sure you want to be his devoted disciple? It's going to call for a great deal more than you realize. And when we, come, when we were brand new Christians, many of us who first came to Christ, we had no idea what we were biting off, did we? We didn't know that this life in Christ would have ramifications for our home life. It would have ramifications for how we treat our spouse. It would have ramifications for what entertainment we would expose our to. It would have ramifications for how we handled our time, our efforts, our talents, our funds. It would touch every conceivable area in our life. We didn't know that, did we, when we first began? And now that we've followed him for some time, we're beginning to realize because of the magnitude of who he is, he lays claim to every area of our lives. And he's worthy to. Amen to that? Because of who he is, he has every right to the whole person of the disciple. It's not that he wants a little bit of your time or a certain amount of your funds. or, or It isn't that he wants bits and pieces compartmentalizes pieces of your life, what he really wants is you. He just wants you and me. That's real discipleship. And so look at what else he says. He gives the illustration of the tower. So what is he saying? Think twice about this. And then verse 29, he finishes the story with, otherwise when he has laid a foundation... And is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. And saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And then he gives another illustration that has more to do with warfare and battle and conflict and difficulty. And so he talks about in verse 31, this king 
Look, for, look at 31. Or what king, when he, has, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still afar off, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. What is the Lord doing? And of all the things that he would teach, why would he teach this great multitude, if you're going to follow me, count the cost? Why is he doing that? Why such a radical call to discipleship? Now, I'm building up to something regarding the context, so stay with me now. Verse 33 is the punch. So therefore, in light of these two illustrations, the tower and the king. No one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Now, what's he calling us to? Some would take that in a concrete, wooden way and say, well, we're all called to a monastic life. That's certainly not what he means. What he means is that even what you have, you do not hold with white knuckles but everything that is in your hands is mine. If you're all mine, then all that's yours is mine. You lay claim to none of it, ultimately. But rather, as a disciple, begin to make use of what you have. And then, he says, and by the way, you're going to need perseverance. You're going to need endurance as a Christian. This isn't a flash in the pan. This isn't a short-term commitment. This is to your dying breath. You'll love me and be devoted to me and follow me. And you can see this in verse 34. I think that's what he meant. Therefore, salt is good. And I scratched my head when I read that. Lord, where are you going with this? You started out with a call of absolute love and devotion to yourself, of allegiance to you, affection for you, to make you the supreme object of my life and my love and my devotion, so much so that all other lesser loves pale in comparison. And then you tell me, take up a cross and follow you. And then you tell me these two stories about a tower and counting the cost and about a battle, and making sure you can win it. And now you switch to a different metaphor altogether, salt. Why? Therefore, verse 34, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And then he says to this crowd, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is stunning to me, what he's doing. But the most stunning part is forget that there's a chapter 15. Realize that Dr. Luke is writing the scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he goes right into verse 1. Now, 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. Now, when you read the forcefulness of his call to discipleship, to love him above all others, you would think to yourself, well, the only ones that could even begin to hold a candle to that call would certainly be the most religious among that society. Wouldn't you? You would expect it would be those who know their Bibles the best. It would be those who are the rulers of the people religiously. It would be the scribes, and it would be the Pharisees. It would be those who were the religious elite. They are the ones, only ones, who could possibly embrace that kind of call to discipleship. This is why this is so scandalous. It's the tax collectors. It's, it's, the, it's the notorious sinners who were at his feet listening to him. And both the Pharisees, verse 2, and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man not only welcomes and receives sinners to make it worst, he eats with them. He sits at table with them, like we saw in our reading in Matthew chapter 9. By way of introduction, I want to share just a few, a few points. This is all introduction. We're really not going to get deep into chapter 15 yet. And I know you think you know the stories well, but I hope you'll come each week with an open heart and mind because there's a considerable amount of truth and reality in this chapter that is really quite stunning and amazing. It's such a compelling chapter. The first thing I want you to consider is this. Jesus had a surprising effect on his world of listeners. What do I mean by that? Well, we have here uh, tax gatherers, and we have sinners, and we have Pharisees, and we have scribes. And those are the four that are mentioned and were told the effect he was having upon them. Now, when you study tax gatherers in the New Testament, they're not a well-liked group of folk. And I'll give you kind of the Reader's Digest version of it. Basically, the tax collectors, there were chief tax collectors who themselves sort of owned the franchise, and I'll explain that in a moment. And then they had subcontractors or sub-tax uh, collectors who actually did the footwork and went out extracting taxes. And the way this worked under, uh, under the Roman Empire and under Roman law was that you would bid, you would actually make a bid and pay for the job. Like a, like a Pizza Hut franchise. And so what was happening was that Jewish men were making their bid to the Roman proconsul and who was delegated with this authority and, the, and this man would make a bid to become a tax 
collector, a chief tax collector. Like the story of Zacchaeus that we all remember so well. And what would happen then is that as a Jew, you would do a couple different things. One of the things is that you would be mutinous and you would be a traitor to your own people because you would actually, it isn't that you came, they came with authority and said you must collect taxes on your own initiative and by your own volition. You went to Rome and said, I want to be a tax collector. How much will it cost me to buy this franchise? And so then you would become a tax collector and now it would be your job to extract and exploit and rip off the Jewish people. And that's why so many times in the New Testament when the words sinners are there, tax collectors, sinners, and harlots are all coupled together. They were despised. I can't tell you how much disdain the Jewish people had for tax collectors because they were there among their own who bid for the job and then got wealthy on the shoulders and backs of struggling, impoverished Jewish people. They were hated. They were linked right there with harlots. So that's the group that Jesus has listening to him and eats with them and is reaching out to them. The others are just notorious sinners. People who make no pretense. When I use the word notorious, it's because these folks, though they may be Jewish, they make no pretense to being religious. They are brazen about their sin. They are brazen and self-willed about their narcissistic lifestyle. They're not even trying because they know there's no hope for them because if the Pharisee is the model of what it means to be religious, they don't have a chance. And here's the amazing thing. How do we explain that with such attraction, Jesus drew these people to himself And they came and were learning and were listening and were riveted to his teaching. How do we explain that when the the chapter we read previously gave such an all-out, paramount call to discipleship, so much so that even all human relationships would pale in comparison to the love and devotion and trust that Jesus Christ was calling for. How do we explain that they were listening? Why didn't they just turn and run? That's a dilemma for me, isn't it for you? What was it that drew them to himself? Just quickly, the Pharisees, They were separatists. They were the religious elite. And they were kind of the practitioners of the religious world at that time. They were uppity. They were self-righteous. They were rigid and militant about their religious life. Touch not, taste not, tithe everything that you have. All of this was that they 
could have a solid righteousness before God, up and over, head and shoulders above the common people like you and me. And as a result, what would be their response when they looked at Jesus spending time with those kind of people, being separatists? Well, they looked at him and they thought, Jesus, Jesus is not shunning these people as he should. Doesn't he know who he's associating with? He instructs them and welcomes them. In fact, he eats with them and drinks with them, laughs with them, talks with them, sits in their homes at their very table like Zacchaeus or like Matthew. What is he doing? In other words, their picture of a man of God was not Jesus. The scribes, they were a little different. The scribes were generally, they were the scholars of the day. They were the professors. They were the men of letters. They were the learned men who studied the law. And they didn't always agree with the Pharisees. But they agreed on this. Jesus Christ cannot possibly be from God. Because if we are right of necessity, he has to be wrong. And if he is right, it is unthinkable for us that we are wrong. And so, the first thing I want you to remember as we move through this chapter is the surprising effect that Jesus had on his world of listeners. Secondly, Jesus had a sincere affection for his world of listeners. And he demonstrates it in the three stories that follow. He says something valuable has been lost. It must be sought. And when it is found, there must be joy. There must be celebration. And so he says, the first thing lost that is of value was a man's sheep. And then he tells the story. And then the second thing lost is a woman's coin. And she goes to work scouring the house and sweeping and looking behind everything until she finds her coin. And then again, that which is valuable is found, rescued, and rejoiced over. The third story is, and I don't want to be too hard on anybody about this or myself, but it's really not the, the story of the prodigal son. It starts out with a man had two sons. It's the story of two sons. And, and, and you shouldn't just immediately jump into the story and say the father in this story is God. You shouldn't do that. Because when, when, when the, when the young, younger son returns, and we'll see this later, and is repentant as returning, he says to his father, I, or he says, I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. You see the difference? 
And so it's dangerous to make a parable stand on all four legs. We have to be careful when we read a parable. Now, of course, the Father is certainly a reflection of the heart of God. But what Jesus is really doing, and we'll see this, he is answering the issue of why do you, if you're really a man of God, why do you associate with welcome and eat with sinners and tax collectors? That's really the question that's answered by the entire chapter. And the answer to that question is because joy is the serious business of heaven. And my heart, Jesus says, is in perfect harmony with heaven, its values and priorities, and yours is not. That's really the meaning of Luke chapter 15. Simply put. And in all three stories, when they unfold, we will see. We will see something valued that's lost, something valued that's sought, something valued that's found, and something valued that is celebrated and rejoiced over when it's found. It's such an incredible chapter. And it is in stark contrast to the religious rulers, to the scribes, and to the Pharisees. So Jesus had a sincere affection for his world of listeners. Thirdly, Jesus leads to some searching questions in this world of listeners, in my world of listeners, in me as a listener. Am I listening? So, the questions, this question has ramifications for both the notorious sinner, but also for the moral, upright, self-righteous religionist. No, in other words, guys, nobody gets off the hook. There's no way to escape your place and my place somewhere. In Luke chapter 15. We're in there. Jesus came for salvation. Not for condemnation. So how do we explain then. His strong demands on discipleship. On following him. On trusting him. On having no rivals. Of your love and devotion to him. How do we explain that. If he did not come to condemn. But to save. How do we explain that? Well, some possible answers is that he, it's because you cannot be saved until you know you're lost. You can't be saved until you know you're lost. You uh, cannot be rescued until you know that you're in peril. You're in danger. Your life is precarious apart from Jesus Christ. Because you cannot be healed of soul unless you know you're sick. It's pretty simple stuff, isn't it? What is lostness if it is not blindness? 
Thirdly, Jesus, or secondly, Jesus was not a sinner, so how do we account for sinners being attracted to him? I mean, think about it. The holiest, purest, impeccably righteous man that ever left his footprints in this world, you would think we would all be running from. But how is it that he draws us to himself? Well, he's nothing like the Pharisees. And he was not vulnerable when he was with sinners. Haven't you noticed in your Christian life how the Lord, in tenderness and love and concern for you, is able to come and meet with you and get right down into the mess of your life? He can do that, and he in no wise is in a precarious situation when he does. He isn't tempted. He isn't marred. He isn't soiled when he gets close to you and me because of who he is. He can draw near to us and help us in the mess we're in, and he walks away having helped us. There's no dirt on him. He's God in, in flesh. Every one of us know instinctively almost that something's wrong and something's missing. Something's wrong. Something's missing. And, and, and can I throw out a, a thought and let you just wrestle with it? Is it possible that a great deal of the activity that's going on right now in, on planet Earth, a great deal of the activity that has gone on from the fall of Adam and the transmission of sin to the human race, is it possible that the whole motivation, the underlying current that drives the world is the knowledge intuitively deep within something's wrong and something's missing? Is that possible? Is it possible that even the, even the brutal, barbaric, unmentionable things that are going on in the Middle East and now are popping up in places like Bangladesh this week, Orlando not long ago, is it possible that even those people that are perpetrating such evils of violence and heartlessness and no value of human life, even they are doing what they're doing because inside they're trying to find some way to rationally make sense of a life where something's wrong and something's missing. Is that possible? And it isn't a something merely that is missing. It's someone who's missing. Him. And that's why he called us to an all-out allegiance to himself. Think about this one. Jesus was not a sinner, so how do we explain Jesus welcoming sinners? Unless he was God in human flesh. Here's another one. Jesus was not a sinner, so how do we explain the most religious people grumbling and criticizing and wanting to do away with him. How do we explain that? 
Think about it. He was not a sinner, but they wanted him dead and ultimately carried it out. How do we explain that? Well, blindness, self-deception. They embrace God's law with both arms and the very one who comes to call us, rescue us, restore us, and rejoice over us, the serious business of heaven, the very one who comes is hated and rejected by them. Strange. So in each parable, we have the sheep, coin, and the sons, and we'll dig in deeper to them. But let me just do this, and we'll close now. In that first story of the sheep, I would just impress on your heart as God has impressed on mine how absolutely beautiful and incredible Jesus Christ really is. We know he's the shepherd, don't we? Ultimately. He's telling a story about a shepherd. He's saying, which one of you having a hundred sheep? But ultimately, we have all kinds of data in our New Testament and even in the Old to realize that Jesus Christ is the shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so I would like to just give you this to ponder as you think about that first story of the shepherd. And this is what struck me. He is not talking about a hired hand. Because he tells us in John 10, the hireling or the hired hand who's there taking care of the sheep, as soon as wolves come, he does what? He runs for it. Because he's just a hired hand. When danger comes, hardship comes, protection is needed, or seeking a lost sheep, going out of your way, hirelings don't do that. Because they just don't care. But he says, no, this is the shepherd who owns the sheep. They're his sheep. And so he has an intense interest in them. And so in that story, I wrote these notes. This one sheep becomes the object of his thoughts. He counted up his sheep. He knew he had 100. He counted 99, maybe counted a second time. There's one missing. And immediately, it was that one sheep that he had in his thoughts. Not only that, but it was this one sheep that became the object of his concern. And then because of that, this one sheep became the object of his efforts to reach and find and rescue that sheep. And we're told in the story this little phrase, until he finds it. And so this one sheep becomes the object of his perseverance as he searches for that lost sheep. And then the beauty of the story and what this whole chapter is about is that this one sheep becomes the object of his joy. He finds it, puts that lamb up over his neck, holding both ankles, carries it back, and calls his friends and neighbors and says, come and rejoice with me. <laughs> I have found my sheep, which was lost. 
Here's a test of, of your religiousness, of my religiousness. Are you still capable as a Christian of having overwhelming joy when you hear of somebody coming to Jesus Christ for the first time? Are you still able to rejoice over a soul that comes to Christ? Or has your Christianity become old hat, routine-ish, even a bit boorish, so that your heart no longer beats with heaven? Is your heart, is my heart in harmony with heaven? Do I rejoice over a soul coming to Christ? So the parable in verse 7, he tells us, here's the point. I tell you that in the same way, the same way as I just explained this story, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I think Lewis is right, don't you? that the serious business of heaven is joy. And in spite of all of the bad news and in spite of the media, in spite of atrocities that because of modern media, we have it almost in real time. I mean, the smoke of the suicide bombs hasn't even dissipated and we're seeing it on the news. Let me ask you, do the atrocities that take place in this world whether perpetrated by man or natural disasters under God's sovereignty, does any of that dissipate or reduce the serious business of heaven, the joy of people coming to Christ? In any way is that affected? And 2,000 years ago, was that a happy time to live? Was that an easy road for these folks when a third of the Roman Empire were slaves? Jesus is speaking to an audience that understands hardship, understands difficulty, understands deprivation. He under, he, he's speaking to a group of people that are in many ways impoverished and suffering under the tyranny of Rome. And yet he interjects this beautiful chapter of something valued, something sought, something found, and something celebrated with the joy of heaven. What a great chapter this is going to be. So I hope you stay with us for it and continue to learn along with me as I learn with you. Let's pray. Our Father, we join the people of the of the of the first century who, who were astonished at his teaching because he did not teach them like the scribes, but as one having authority. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness of this chapter. Thank you that when we when we devote ourselves to you and trust you and look to you and depend on you 
and give our full allegiance to you, it doesn't cause us to love people less, but to love them more and to love them more purely and more truly. God, thank you that Jesus, your son, didn't water it down. He didn't cut any corners. There were no holes in his teaching. He called us, follow me. Follow me, walk with me, trust me, yield to me, give yourselves to me. I want you. Lord, make us more fully disciples, learners, your apprentices, being taught daily to live this Christian life. And thank you for this beautiful story. And thank you for the scandalous love and goodness that's that's here that the Pharisees and scribes couldn't deal with. And sometimes in our own self-righteousness, we find ourselves akin to the Pharisees. Not knowing that both the tax collectors and the sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were all defiled. They were all in need of you. So Lord, we find ourselves in this story. But we pray that as we study it, as we learn, as we take it in, that as an outcome, we will become just a little bit more like you. And we'll be people of compassion. People of understanding. People able to get near those who are in a mess and help them without ourselves being contaminated. Help us to become more like you. Lord, thank you. Thank you that I am the lost sheep that you found. And I am the lost coin that was discovered. And I am that prodigal. Both of them at times. Sometimes wanting to eat the swine's corn husks and pods and sometimes self-righteously complaining that I don't get what I deserve like the older brother. Oh God, take this chapter and help us to marinate in it until it does its work in all our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.